As we get settled, we dismiss our children for their time of worship. And as they go, let us pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We continue our exploration through the book of Acts as we look at those early disciples of the Christian church and the faithful acts that they bestowed upon us. We turn to Acts chapter 17 to read this passage. Hear now these words of the Lord. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since God himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And God allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places in which they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed God is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring." Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed in the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now God commands all people everywhere to repent, because God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all By raising him from the dead. When the Athenians had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, We will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is a tale as old as time, isn't it? Dorothy lands herself in Oz. Gilligan shows up on that island. And Paul arrives in Athens. A bit of culture shock all around. That sense of disorientation when you feel as you're entering a new environment that is unfamiliar and curious. So as Paul was a little disoriented, let's disorient ourselves a little, shall we, and travel back to ancient Greece. When Paul chose uh, to make this speech that we just heard, 
He did so, as verse 22 says, in front of the Areopagus. So with these words, we're transported to a rocky hillside in the late first century of Athens, Greece. And this hill was important not just because it overlooked the Acropolis, but because it also housed the most prestigious council of elders and lawmakers in the history of Athens. It was there at the Areopagus where rousing discussions and actions of law and philosophy and politics took place. It was like our national mall, if you will, equivalent of ancient Greece, where the influential received their power and where society climbers went to see and be seen. And so it was here where Paul, the babbler, as he's described earlier on in this passage, was invited to come and make his case and share about the Jesus way to the intellectual athletes of Athens. Earlier in his trip to Athens, Paul had spent some time getting to know that Athenian culture and engaging with the Greek community. He browsed the religious marketplace and religious centers and saw that the Athenians worshipped many idols and shared many philosophies about life and the mysteries of the world. He picked up on those intellectual curiosities and made note of their practices. And so we hear in verse 23, he saw how their religious devotion was so extensive and the gods so plentiful, they even had set up an altar to an unknown god. You know, just in case they accidentally left one out and were feeling awfully superstitious. Which, let's face it, isn't all that unusual for those of us who wear the same lucky t-shirt throughout March Madness if UK or UofL is playing. Through their idols and their quest for higher power, Paul sees them and gets them and now tries to relate to them. And it's through this connection between the plentiful idols of the Greeks and the one God of the Jews and Gentiles that Paul begins his speech detailing the God that he knows the God of all the created things in the universe, the God of Adam and Abraham and from whom all nations are blessed and known, the God that made all things and is in all things and yet, unlike the Greek gods, does not limit God's self to those human-made things, the God who knew that throughout history, humanity would search and grope for God and thus remains real close to each and every one of us. And then, at the high point of his speech, in this very important rocky hillside to the intellectual elite, Paul quotes their own poets back to them. That verse that you and I love, in him we live and move and have our being, was actually an idea from Plato that was adopted by the Greek poet Epimenides. And that next quote, "We we too are his offspring, was a Stoic idea from the Greek poet Aratus. I told you we were going back to ancient Greece, didn't I? I imagine those ancient Athenians who were hearing Paul on that hillside might have nodded along with him as they heard those familiar words to them to describe an unfamiliar God. Paul knew their culture. He knew their poets. He knew the importance of speaking their language. 
The term enculturation is a somewhat churchy term that is used to describe how the gospel message of Jesus is adapted for people and cultures who aren't largely Christian themselves. It means sharing the story of Jesus by using the language and expressions and traditions and customs of a particular culture that people understand intimately And then being open for those traditions and language and customs of that culture to shape the church. Paul got that. He was sort of the original enculturator, if you will. He knew that bringing this Jesus-laced gospel to a largely educated, philosophical, cosmopolitan Greek community would need some familiar language that they could hang their hat on. You see, the Christian faith is inescapably bound to Jesus, to the person of Jesus, from its very first communities trying to make hard sense of the the meaning of this wandering prophet and teacher's birth, life, death, and resurrection. And yet, while the Christian faith and Jesus cannot help but move hand in hand, this very faith can't be separated from the culture in which it's being shared. Theologian Roger Haight says that Christology, or the study of Jesus Christ, has to be formulated in the language of the culture to which it is addressed, if it is to be understood. And so ever since Paul used Greek philosophers to describe the character and nature of God to a pagan community, every culture with a Christian expression has found a way to draw connection and meaning and translatable language between the gospel of Jesus and their nation or people group or ideology. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once named, the central question of our faith is who is Jesus Christ for us today? Our minds might travel quickly to the ways that enculturation has had a devastating effect on the human story, like the inseparable ways that Christianity in the Western world plundered nations, enslaved and eradicated people, and drained resources in the name of Jesus. But we hear also the hopeful voices of those who spoke gospel truth to their cultures in ways that changed the world. We hear Dr. King speaking to a segregated South and dreaming of an equal world. We hear Oscar Romero to the impoverished Latinos longing for justice for those who were oppressed. We hear Mother Teresa to the children of the Indian slums bearing grace and mercy as the face of Christ. We hear it today in the stories of those in AA who search after our higher power and seek to live a confessional whole life again. We're trying to do this at Highland, too, not to equate us too closely with Dr. King and Oscar Romero and Mother Teresa, but we are. It's why we're renovating our space for children and youth, so that the cultural languages of smart boards and flexible space and multisensory learning can communicate the stories of Jesus and songs of faith in ways that can be heard and made real to our 21st century adolescents. It's why our young adult community intentionally tries to find non-traditional spaces in which to talk about our faith so that the cultural language of pub conversations and concerts and coffee shops can be the very venues in which the gospel story is shared with skeptical people. It's why our church's mission and justice efforts from Shelby Park to Miami to Morocco 
partner and listen to local indigenous leaders and come alongside of them to equip and empower for ministry so that those communities may hear and be transformed by one of their own. In these ways and many more, our churches is trying faithfully to dialogue with the cultures in which we encounter. And to add one more layer to this truth that our gospel story must account for the culture in which we live, we also must know that there is no one pure, unadulterated view and version of the gospel of Jesus. We are always hearing the stories of Jesus and experiencing the action of God in the world through the lens that each one of us bears and our specific culture creates for us. To use myself as an example, I can't experience all the nuances of my faith outside of my cultural reality as a straight, white, extroverted, 30-something female, educated, progressive wife and mother with a postmodern worldview who lives in a thriving city and has a strong relationship with my family and friends. Each of those markers of my cultural reality affect how I hear the story of a brown-skinned, 30-something Jewish prophet, healer, teacher, and servant from a country town in the middle of first century Palestine. And the same goes for each and every one of us in the room. We all bring our own cultural lens to the experience of God in Jesus. I'll never forget the season of my life when I realized that Jesus was a fully formed product of his own cultural moment, not simply an encultured product of mine. He wasn't just the angelic, white, blue-eyed, hippie-dressed, flowing-haired, staring-to-your-soul, frozen expression Jesus that dotted the walls of the Sunday school rooms of my childhood. He wasn't just the buddy, bobble-headed Jesus action figure that you find in the kitschy aisles at your local urban outfitters, or as just the J in the WWJD bracelet that we wore in the 90s. He wasn't just the object of our desire as the Jesus is my boyfriend songs rang out through my college experience. No, Jesus was, it's true, it's true. Um, (laughs) Jesus was a Palestinian, a poor first century troublemaker from the tiny town of Nazareth who spoke out against Roman oppression and Jewish religious establishment with dirt under his nails, with sand between his toes, and with worry lines of love etched across his face. It is this Jesus the Christ with whom Paul ends his speech. The Athenians may have appreciated those connections with the lofty language of their philosophers and that heavenly ideas that Paul shared, But it's when Paul brings us down to the tangible, to the human, to the resurrection of the one with dirt under his nails, that both most of the listeners start scoffing. Paul later wrote about this experience, saying that this gospel was foolishness to the Greeks. But there were some who were intrigued. And there were two, a man and a woman, who joined him and believed. I think that Paul in this text today isn't simply inviting us to explore how we might as a church do some enculturation, finding ways that we remain in dialogue with our culture, but I think Paul calls us today to incarnation, to making real flesh and blood 
the reality of the gospel. Because the true reality here is that the gospel isn't just a product of our culture, but it's what orients our very lives, our real flesh and blood lived selves. Living the life of faith is not just an intellectual exercise like those beloved of the Greeks, but a bodily reality that we experience each and every day. We know from the witness of Mary Magdalene and Peter and Thomas and Paul and the disciples that God did not just resurrect Jesus' mind, but his body, his broken body in whose name we share the holy meal each month and the one who bore the real scars and pain of a human existence and yet embodies the hope that in the end, love wins. It is an audacious claim to bear witness to this encultured, incarnate gospel message of love. But that is precisely the audacious life that God is calling us to live. At the core of our calling as people of faith is to be resurrection people. To notice when we see resurrection taking place and to bear witness to it. To see through our filtered eyes these moments where new life is breathed into deadened spaces. When the narrative takes a turn for the unexpected. Where light is thrust into the dark corners of life. And where people distracted by unknown idols catch a glimpse, if just for a moment, of the mystery of God. To hear and feel And know that God is not done. And to live in our own unique communities and cultures as if that truth matters. For five years now, during the week after Easter, I have traveled to the Carolinas to meet up with my best friends from seminary. Our group of six are all ministers scattered around the southeast in different states and different churches and different ministerial roles. Our time together each year is part vacation, part idea sharing, part burden bearing. It is holy ground indeed. This year it ended with the wedding of one of our group of six and then a quick trip for my family over to Georgia where my mom preached and was voted in unanimously as the new pastor of a small rural Georgia country church. In the shadow of Easter morning, surrounded by my people, I spent that week bearing witness to resurrection. I heard it in stories from my friend who pushed through her fears that she's not good enough or assertive enough or experienced enough so that she worked hard for and received a promotion. I knew it as my friend tearfully described the addiction he had stumbled into and the life changes he has made to get and stay sober. I saw it in my friend whose newborn daughter arrived just in time to usher his beloved grandmother into a quiet death. I watched it in a church swollen with people and overflowing with unbridled joy, united two lives in marriage in ways that they had never done before. I saw it in another church, courageously stepping into an unknown future as a 60-year-old pastor's wife became their new shepherd. I saw it in my parents, my mom's eyes alight with the realization of her calling, and my dad's eyes quieting and shifting into a new role. In the aftermath of Easter, in me and through me and around me, 
was a resurrection hope. And I felt it. And now I bear witness to these resurrection moments and the countless others that give hope to my days. What resurrection moments have you experienced recently? It might be an unexpected lightness in a relationship that has burdened you. It might be a peace you've experienced while waiting to learn about your health or your job. It might be a moment, that one moment, when you look in the mirror and for once don't despise what you see. It might be shared with your friends as you link arms together to support one of your own. It might be in this very room as we watch a baby be dedicated or like the resurrection moments we experienced yesterday when celebrating the life of our dear Wesley Edwards, when in the words of Joe, the spirit of that great man and the feeling and force of love bound broken families, sister churches, and friends together. What might happen if we began to notice, to really notice resurrection in our midst? What could take place if we, firmly centered in our own culture and our own community, spoke of how we knew God and are known by God? What if we found others' resurrection stories as hope that our own lives have the potential for resurrection too? We just might be transformed. In these ancient words of Paul, some borrowed from a new culture and others calling upon the life-shaping nature of Jesus, may we all be encouraged by his faithful acts of bearing witness to God revealed in Jesus. For as we bear witness, like Paul, to the work of God in our lives and in the unique cultures in which we live, we are made whole. And that is the promise of resurrection. Thanks be to God indeed. Amen. We are a people who practice resurrection together. We are imperfect yet hopeful, and yet we journey together as pilgrims on this road of faith. If today you feel God's call in your life to unite your life with this community, we would invite you to make your decision known to us by walking down the center aisle. If today you feel the call of Jesus in your life to commit your life as a follower of his in new ways, we invite you to come. As we stand together and sing our closing hymn, number 671, Will You Come? <laughs>